All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning together. And if you are new or visiting, especially just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us. And if there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to do that. Uh, come find me or somebody else who looks like they know which direction is the way to go around here. Uh, we, we genuinely love to get to know you and love to get you plugged into the community here at River City. So... Excited to continue our new series this morning. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you are joining us for the first time this morning, or if, like me, you have a hard time remembering what you had for breakfast, let alone what some pastor said last week, let me catch you up on the story and where we're at, and we'll dive into our time in God's Word together this morning. So 1 Corinthians is a, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. It was a Greek city located basically uh, on this little narrow isthmus of land between the Greek mainland and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And, and so this uh, church is a church that Paul actually helped to start about five years prior to the writing of this letter. And, and uh, so it's one of the things that's really important to understand, uh, as, especially as we're reading somebody else's mail, basically. Uh, it's not like a creepy, like illegal kind of reading somebody else's mail. This is just like a circulated letter kind of thing. But we need to understand some context if we're going to be able to apply that rightly to our lives. And so we talked in the past couple weeks about how Corinth was this incredibly important port city because of its location. It was kind of the de facto uh, port city that basically controlled east-west trade between Rome and the western or the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And, and so huge amounts of goods and, and therefore money and influence and power flew, flowed through the, the ports of the city of Corinth. But we also talked about the city of Corinth was also a new city. About 200 years prior to the writing of this letter, uh, Rome had conquered the, that city and basically destroyed it and decided to leave it leveled for about 100 or so years. And so about 100 years before the writing of this letter that we have, Rome decided that they were going to rebuild the city of Corinth and resettle it with new people, people who are interested in Rome's priorities instead of, uh, instead of, instead of somebody else's. And and so the city was settled mainly by freed slaves and former army veterans. And so you have this group of people who's basically, for the first time, like getting new lives. It's like a new chapter. It's a new page in their lives. And so you have a city that is brand new and incredibly important and full of people who are making new lives for themselves. And so there is this incredibly uh, upwardly mobile and aspirational mindset in the city of Corinth. And, and that's important important to understand because that attitude was at the very heart of the ethos of the city of Corinth. You see, everything in the city of Corinth revolved around climbing the social and economic ladder or maintaining your place at the top of the ladder. It's the thing everybody cared most about. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. See, Corinth was a place you'd go to make a name for yourself and make an identity for yourself and to, and to make a new life of prosperousness there. And so this consuming fixation on upward mobility and the desire to be seen by others as praiseworthy and powerful and influential, it permeated Corinthian culture from the top to the bottom. And what we saw in the last, last week as we began our study, kind of really reading through the letter, 
is that, is that tragically the church in Corinth wasn't any different. There were no exception. They had just bought in to the ethos of the city that they had lived in. And as you can imagine, it was causing a lot of problems. I mean, this church is like a stone's throw from a dumpster fire, right? Like it is just endlessly problematic. There's so much trouble going on here. And as we read the letter, what we're going to find is that, is that the vast majority of the issues that the Apostle Paul has to address in this troubled church, they all stem from the same problem is that they had believed the truth of the gospel, that they were saved by faith in the person and the work of Jesus, but their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by the truths of the gospel. Instead, their lives and their community were being ongoingly formed by the, the ethos of their surrounding culture and by the driving primary narrative of that culture. You see, what's painfully clear is that their highest priority was their own glory and their own social advancement, not God's glory, and not his kingdom's advancement. You see, and what we see is that it was not only destroying their community, it was destroying their witness to a watching world. The first way we saw that happening last week as we began chapter one was, was just that it was leading them to be an increasingly divided church. They're fighting with one another endlessly. People were forming factions around various leaders in the church and they're, they're fighting amongst one another about who's right and who's wrong and who's the most impressive. And These divisions we saw, they weren't, they weren't based on theological differences or just really some kind of pastoral popularity contest. Instead, these divisions were a result of the fact that the Corinthian believers had just imported their culture's system of patronage into the life of the church. And so in Corinth, one of the ways up the social ladder, again, the thing that mattered most to everybody, one of the ways you could climb that ladder is basically kind of by latching yourself on to someone who you saw as higher up the ladder. Right? And so you'd kind of join their fan club, and you'd, as, as you'd recruit more people to be a part of that fan club, then, then that leader, whoever it was be, that person, that patron, that they'd, as they grew in influence and being seen as influential and seen as important and seen as praiseworthy by the nature of the culture's values, then, then you too, your status would rise with them. See, ultimately, patronage it was just kind of this attempt at self-validation and self-glorification by attaching yourself to somebody else and to their success and their status. What we see is that, is that these, these believers, instead of living and resting in the identity that they already have as God's holy people, they're, they're instead, they're trying to manufacture identities for themselves by union with some other patron. We talked about how we do that all the time. Right? We, we attach ourselves to people and causes and brands and institutions and, and parenting methods and schooling ideologies and all that kind of stuff. And, and we do it in an attempt to kind of validate or glorify ourselves by our association with those things. And they be, these functional patrons, they become our surrogate saviors. We look to them to give us the identity and the status and the, and the sense of security that, we, that we're looking for. But instead of saving us, they just create walls between us and everyone else who's attached themselves to other things. And that's exactly what you see happening in this church in Corinth. We saw Apostle Paul, he addresses that problem not just by highlighting the futility of that kind of thinking, but, but by showing how that ideology is fundamentally out of step with the very message of the gospel See, Paul says he didn't come proclaiming Jesus or himself, for that matter, to be a, a patron that could help you climb up the social ladder. Instead, he proclaiming Jesus as a savior, not as a patron. And a savior who, who had come to set them free from slavery to living in that system in the first place. 
So that instead of endlessly striving to climb the ladder and, a, and manufacture an identity and a status for themselves, they'd instead be set free to rest in the identity that he has freely given them. The identity as his chosen and beloved and holy and commissioned people. See, in the beginning of chapter 1, we saw how that identity, it's far more noble it's far more prestigious, it's far more secure, it's far more life-giving than, than any identity that, that we could manufacture for ourselves. And yet Paul says this, this message of the gospel and, and, the, and the new identity and the new status that God freely gives by faith in the person and the work of Jesus, that that, that message is regarded as utterly foolish. It's not just in the Corinthians world. It's in our world as well. It's a message that's considered as utterly foolish because it runs counter to everything that seems wise to the world. See, the wisdom of the Corinthian world and the wisdom of ours as well, it often says, right, that the identity and the status that you're looking for, it comes through power over or praise from people. What really satisfies, what really gives life is being seen by others as important as influential, as worthy of respect and admiration. And the way that you get it is by ruthlessly pursuing and embodying the things that the world says matter most. In Corinth, that was wealth and wisdom. Earthly ways to those things. It was, it was influence. And yet the message of the gospel, the wisdom of God, says that the status and the identity that you are longing for and that you're looking for, it's not found in your relationship to other people. It's not found in having power over others or being praised by others. Instead, it's found in your relationship to God. And the way you get a status and a standing from him isn't by working hard to have power and influence and to be praised by him, but instead by resting in the person and the work of Jesus on your behalf and, and who God declares and calls you to be in him. I see what happens is when you rest in that identity and that status, instead of endlessly climbing the ladder, you're freed and empowered to descend it. And we see Paul doing that at the end of our, our passage last week, right? Where, where he, instead of coming with all the rhetorical methods and impressive persuasiveness of the orators of his day, instead he came in humility and weakness. And he did it so that the message, not the messenger, would be seen and heard and gloried in. You see, but the, the reason that this gospel message is regarded as utter foolishness isn't just because it runs counter to everything that the world seems wise. You see, like Paul demonstrated, it's, it's because it requires us to, to live in opposition to the wisdom of the world requires us to, to give it up altogether. See, the, the wisdom of the God, the message of the cross, isn't just a message about Jesus' substitutionary death for us. It is that, but, but it's more than that. You see, it's also a message about our own death as well. See, the message of the gospel is a call for us to die to the pursuit of our own glory. The pursuit of our own glory through the praise of people and the validation we get from them. It's a call to die to our sense of self-sufficiency and the pride that we get by relying on ourselves and our own strength. It's, see, the message of the gospel is inherently a message of, it's a call for us to die to ourselves. See, in the wisdom of Corinth and the wisdom of our world, says that the way to the identity and the status you need is by, is by giving yourself to the pursuit of those very things. 
the things the gospel calls us to die to. You see, and so it sees it as utter foolishness. What I want to show you this morning as we continue our study, as we finish up chapter 2 this morning, what I want to show you is that this upside down, this counterculture message of the gospel, see, the only way that that message goes from weakness and foolishness to wisdom and salvation, the only way that changes is when God, by his spirit, reveals the truth about it to us. You see, it's only when God by his spirit gives us eyes to see and understand the foolish message of the gospel as the life-giving wisdom it really is that we'll be able to receive it and to ongoingly live in step with it. And so, with that in mind, let's pray and we'll continue reading our study this morning. God, thanks for you. Thanks for your word. God, thanks for this letter. Although it's 2,000 years old, it is incredibly timely. God, for we wrestle with some of the very same things that this church did. God, we're grateful that in your grace you might keep it for us so that we might study it and, and be changed and transformed by it. But God, we, we come this morning and we just want to like, be honest and we just want to confess to you, God, our dependence on you. God, at the very heart of our passage this morning is about a dependence on you. And, and so God, we just want to come recognizing that need. That without you empowering us, without you enabling us to, to, uh, to respond rightly to your word, God, there's no way our hearts and our lives are any different after leaving this morning without you doing that work in us. And so, God, we need you. We need you to meet us in your word this morning so that we might know you, that we may know the wisdom of the gospel, and that we might live in step with it. And so, we need you, God. Thanks that you love to meet us in our need for you, God, for our good. And for your glory, we ask all that. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians this morning. And what I want to do is just read the first five verses as well as the rest of the chapter because I think it helps, helps us to set us up for our passage this morning. We read these first five verses last week at the end of our passage, and we'll start there. Paul writes, he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you with weakness and great fear and trembling, and my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Passes this morning, study begins in verse 6. For we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. It's a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have, been, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. See, these are the things God's revealed to us by his Spirit. And the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows God's thoughts, the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. 
And what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what is freely given to us. And this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but with words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. You see, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. For the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but, a person, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, throughout last week's passage, we saw Paul contrasting the wisdom of the world and God's wisdom, the human wisdom and godly wisdom. And the the whole point of of this contrast throughout these first couple of chapters is that what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to undermine the Corinthians' boasting. He's trying to undermine their prideful self-sufficiency that's that's dividing this church and creating all these kinds of problems. And and he's highlighting how this message of the gospel is, is foolishness to the world. And it's the very wisdom of God we saw last week. What we see him doing this week is continuing to contrast these these two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And we see three really foundational ways, three ways I want to show you that Paul's contrasting these two kinds of wisdom. And and the first is that he's highlighted that while, while human wisdom is temporal, God's wisdom is eternal. See, the wisdom, of the, the wisdom of the age and those who herald it, Paul says in verse 6, it's coming to nothing. See, it's not eternal, it's, it's not forever, and it's not increasing. And it says, Paul says it's coming to nothing. Well, in contrast, he says the wisdom of God is eternal. Verse, four, seven, verse 7 says it's from before even time began. You see, I, th- I think one of the problems, one of the reasons Paul's reminding them of, that, of this reality, right, is just, we are such a forgetful people. It's easy for us to get caught up in the wisdom of this world thinking it's just the way things are or how they always have been or how they always will be. We, we live very easily in the moment. But Paul says there's a wisdom that transcends the moment we find ourselves in. There's a wisdom that transcends the wisdom of the day we live in. You see, the wisdom of God, Paul says, in the message of the gospel, it's an eternal kind of wisdom. It, it came before the wisdom of this age, and it will remain standing long after the wisdom of this age is nothing but a book in history. And the invitation is that we might set our hearts on the only wisdom that will last. You see, this church is living for the wisdom of the age. They're living in the wisdom of the age. It says the way, to, the way to the identity and status and meaning and purpose that you're looking for, it's through power, the power over or praise from people. That's what's, that's what's ruling their lives and forming their community. Paul says that not only is that wisdom coming to nothing, it stands at odds with the wisdom of God. And so the human wisdom, it's temporal, but God's wisdom is eternal. And secondly, Paul goes on, he highlights how human wisdom is informational, while God's wisdom is personal. You see, the, the Greeks pioneered the scientific method and the, and the value of using your mind and your senses to gain an understanding of and knowledge and wisdom and, and the way that you could understand everything you needed to understand is just applying your mind to it. 
And yet Paul says that in contrast to the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of God is not merely an informational knowing. It's not merely a finding out about something. It's a personal kind of wisdom. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 10 and 11, right? He writes, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You see, We'll get to this in just a minute, but the Spirit of God is the one who reveals the, the knowledge of God to us. And so the wisdom of the world says that the, the way to maturity is through knowledge and understanding and through acquiring more information. See, but the wisdom of God is different. It's personal. It's, it's not merely about knowing about something. It's about knowing someone, knowing the, the source of wisdom in the first place. See, there's a huge difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. This is the difference between a relationship and between informational knowledge. You see, for the Corinthians, wisdom, it hinged on informational knowledge. But we see what Paul saying is here is that, that the wisdom of God, it's not about information. He says at the end of verse 9, right, that, the, that no one would know or see the things that God's prepared for those who love him. You see, the wisdom of God is a personal wisdom. It's not, a, it's not an informational or esoteric kind of thing. It's about knowing God himself. You see, and that leads us to the third way Paul contrasts the, the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom. You see, he says, while the wisdom of the world is found by observing and, and by gaining it yourself, God's wisdom, because it is a personal wisdom, is one that is revealed. It's a wisdom that is given. Verse 7, Paul writes, it's a mystery that's been hidden. You know, we tend to think about mysteries as kind of like a puzzle that needs to be solved. I don't know about you. I, I enjoy kind of the true crime genre and like everybody's trying to solve the problems and solve the mysteries of the story that, that needs a fix, right? That needs a problem. And if you kind of just like work it hard enough, then you can figure out the solution and you can solve the problem. You see, but the word that's used for mystery here, it's not referring to a puzzle that we find difficult to solve. The word that's used here for mystery, it refers to, to a secret that we are wholly unable to penetrate. It's a, it's a secret that we cannot find our way into, that you cannot crack the egg of. You see, instead, the wisdom of God is a wisdom that must be revealed. See, just as you can't know a person without them revealing themselves to you, so it is with God, that you cannot know him unless he reveals himself to you. See, and the incredible news is that he has. Verse 10, Paul writes, he says, these are the things, the very message of the gospel and the wisdom of God, Paul says, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The things everyone considered foolish. The things the rulers of this age couldn't understand. The significance of the person and the work of Jesus. The message of the gospel You see, it's a revealed wisdom. See, Paul, he further emphasizes that in verse 14. It's kind of like the big E on the I chart here. He says in verse 14, This person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, And cannot understand them. 
because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Here's, the, here's what Paul's getting at. He says the very wisdom of God and the message of the gospel, you see, is not only something that people do not understand, it's something they cannot understand unless God in his grace reveals it as the wisdom it really is. See, it's not that people can't understand the message or, the, or that the concepts are too hard or, or that it's too esoteric an idea. It's that they can't see it as wisdom. They cannot see it as good news. You see, the message of the gospel is foolishness apart from the Spirit of God making it wise to you. I need you to let that sink into your heart for a moment. You see, unless God, by his Spirit, unless he reveals his wisdom to you, the message of the gospel will always be foolishness to you. You cannot reason your way into it. You cannot work hard enough at understanding it. There is no argument that makes it make sense to you. See, and this is at the very root of what the doctrine of regeneration is all about. You see, that God needs to give us new hearts that are able to respond to the message of the gospel. And without that happening, it will always be foolishness to us. Jesus in John 6, he, he's talking to the disciples about how no one can come to the Father unless the Father calls them. In Acts, we see Paul talking about how he was ministering the gospel in, in, in a city and there was a lady named Lydia and in Acts it says that God opened her heart to respond to the message of the gospel. You see, without God enabling our hearts to respond to him, the gospel will always be foolishness. It will always be folly. It will never make any sense. You see, but here's the incredible thing. When God does, by his grace, enable you to see the person and the work of Jesus as true, eternal wisdom, then what will happen is that you will start to see the world differently. You'll, you'll start to appraise the world differently. That's what verses 15 and 16 are about. Paul, he says, when the Spirit of God's at work in your life, then you'll be able to appraise things the way that God does, and you won't regard the Word of God just as foolishness, and, and, and you won't regard God's ways as backwards and problematic, but you will see them as the most precious and beautiful thing in the world. See, and that only happens when the Spirit enables us to see things the way Jesus does, to see the world the way God sees it, to have his mind, to have his attitude, to have his perspective. That only happens when the Spirit of God reveals that to us. So what's the point? Why is Paul hammering home this idea, both to the Corinthians and for us this morning? Well, again, what Paul's doing is he's undermining this church's boasting in themselves. He's undermining their self-sufficiency. He's undermining their, their belief that the, the way up, the way to glory, and the way to the identity and the status they're looking for is by climbing the ladder themselves. See, and instead, I think his words this morning are meant to both radically humble and radically create a sense of joy and gratitude in them in us. 
You see, if you're here this morning and the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ crucified for you is good news to you, if that's life to you, if you see it as the very wisdom of God, then the reality is that the only reason you see it that way is because God, by his spirit, caused you to see it that way. And that reality, what it should do is produce in us a radical humility and radical gratitude. Humility because like the Corinthians, there's no reason why we should have been revealed it. By earthly standards, we are not those who matter most. We're not those at the top of the ladder. And yet God chose those of us who have no ability to, to prop ourselves up. He chose the, the, the weak and the limited, and he chose those who are not to put to shame, we saw last week, everything that is. And we'd have humility because we don't deserve it, but gratitude because in spite of our unworthiness, Jesus has given us himself. And the king of the universe has made himself known to you. It should produce humility because, as well because anything God uses you to do for him is then the result of his spirit's power and not your own. Gratitude because he's invited you in spite of yourself into his purposes. And so in relation to God, remembering the gracious reality that, that you see the gospel as wisdom only because he reveals it to you as such, it should create humility and gratitude to us in relation to him. But, but it's, not just to meant, it's not just meant to shape our relationship with God, it's also meant to shape our relationship with people, you see? Because in relation to people, especially those that still regard the message of the gospel as foolish, it should cause us to be characterized by patience and by prayerfulness. You see, patience because people not only won't believe the gospel, but, but cannot unless God reveals himself to them. So often I think Christians get frustrated when we see non-Christians acting like non-Christians. And you just want to say, shock, that's how it works. That's how it is. It sh you shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know Jesus and love him live as though they don't know and love him. What happens so often is we try to get people to conform their morality to God's standards without causing their hearts to change. See, in the message of the gospel is that the only way people change is when the good news of the gospel transforms them from the inside out. That's the only way people change. You see, and so the invitation for us is that we might have a radical kind of patience with those that don't know Jesus yet. You see, so often I think it's just easy for us to become self-righteous in our relationships with people that don't know Jesus. How come you don't get it yet? How could you be living that way? How could you think that these things matter most? How could you be doing the things you are doing and saying the things you are saying? It's so easy for us to get self-righteous in that. And the Paul's words this morning are a reminder to us that the only reason you see God's wisdom as wisdom, the only way your life is being ongoingly conformed to his ways and his wisdom is because by his spirit he is causing that to be true in you. And so that radically humbles you and it allows you to be gracious and patient with people that don't know Jesus yet in the midst of their sin, in the midst of the mess that that makes in our lives and it enables us to be patient because we see that we didn't earn anything ourselves. But it's that the great grace of God has made himself known to you 
That's the difference. Paul says the difference between being human wisdom and God's wisdom is that you have the spirit of God. That's the one thing that makes the difference. And so we should be a patient people. But more than that, we should be a people who are deeply committed to prayer. I don't know about you, but when it comes to especially sharing my faith and and wanting to see people become followers of Jesus and grow up as followers of Jesus, I want to rely on methods and philosophies of ministries, and I want to rely on apologetic arguments, and I want to rely on my own preparedness. You see, in None of that stuff is bad. The Bible, in fact, encourages us to to be deeply thoughtful about our faith and to be prepared to give an answer for why we believe the things that we do and, and to have a robust and thoughtful faith. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to minimize those things, but what I'm saying is, is that none of that matters. None of it matters an ounce unless God, by his spirit, opens someone's eyes to see the gospel as wisdom. It doesn't matter. There's no apologetic argument that can cause the gospel to go from foolishness to wisdom. There is no gospel outline that can cause the gospel to go from foolishness to wisdom. There is no amount of training and no amount of preparation. There's no amount of study. There's no fact limit. God uses all those things, but unless he has opened your eyes to see the gospel as wisdom, none of it matters. You see, we're so tempted to rely on that stuff. And it's good that we might grow in it. You see, but if we understand that it's God who transforms people's hearts, then we will give way more of our energy to being people who are committed to prayer and asking the God of the universe to shape and renew and transform and reveal himself to people. That's what we will care about most And it'll shape our thinking about evangelism and apologetics and and learning to think about how to communicate the gospel wisely. We want to do those things, but before we care about any of that stuff, we'll be committed to prayer. You see, it's such good news that God is the one from beginning to end who is in charge of our faith. He is the one who enables it. He is the one who reveals it. He is the one who sustains it. He is the one who will keep it to the end. That's such good news because if it depended on us, this world would have no hope. See, not only would we be endlessly and woefully unprepared, but if we even got lucky once, we would boast in ourselves. And we'd make much of ourselves. And so God, by his grace, does not even give us that option. And yet at the same time, he sovereignly uses us to bring about his transforming work in the lives of others. As I meditated on that stuff this week, it humbled me to the ground. But as well, it filled my heart with joy. You see, when you get it that that the gospel is good news to you, and it becomes good news to others, not because of you, but because of the spirit of God, then it produces in you a radical humility as well as a radical joy. And you long to be patient with others. You long to declare him to others. And you start praying like the thing that matters most is God's work in people's lives. 
So if you're here this morning and the gospel is beautiful and captivating, if it is the wisdom of God to you, and that's not because you figured it out or because, the, because you had some great level of wisdom, it's because the source of wisdom, the one who is wise himself, made you wise. He overcame your prideful self-sufficiency. He overcame your rebellious self-glorification. You did not do it yourself. And he set you free to see Jesus as the Lord of glory, as the Savior he really is, so that we might not boast in ourselves or anyone or anything else but him, and that we would give our lives to making much of him, and that we would live lives of dependence on him. But if you're here this morning, and the message of the gospel, it still seems like foolishness to you. If, if the idea of dying to the pursuit of everything that this world says matters most, if that just seems like the way to, if that just seems like foolishness and craziness, the way, the, way the, the fast track to the identity you are running from, then the word of God this morning is meant to be both a warning and an invitation to you. You see, the wisdom of this world, it is is coming to nothing. The wisdom of this world is ending. It is, it is temporary and futile. It is not leading to life. It is ending. But the wisdom of God is eternal. You see, to follow in the ways of the wisdom of this world, it only leads to death. You see, but dying to the wisdom of this world, it's the way to life. You see, the wisdom of God runs counter to everything this world says is wise. And yet it's actually the way to the identity and the status you really long for. And so I want to encourage you this morning, ask God to cause you to see the foolish message of the gospel for the wisdom it really is. You cannot reason your way into it. You cannot think about it enough so to understand it. It is a personal wisdom that must be revealed. And it begins by humbly asking God to show himself to you. Start there this morning. See, it's the message of the gospel, God's foolish message of the king of the universe crucified for us that we remember and celebrate each week as we take communion. With the bread, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And with the drink, we're reminded of his blood which was shed for us. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and all that it accomplishes. It's, it's through the person and the work of Jesus that we receive the identity that we need and long for. It's because God reveals his by his spirit, the good news of the gospel, that we might see it as good news. And we're given a status and a standing by the king of the universe as his beloved people. Not because we are strong or impressive, but because he is. And he invites us into his kingdom. And so communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus that we might set our eyes on the eternal wisdom of God made known to us on the cross. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you put your trust in Jesus, if he is the wisdom of God to you, then take communion. Do it as a joyful remembrance. Let it humble you and fill you with gratitude. 
But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and, and the gospel message seems foolish to you still, I want you to know you're welcome here and your doubts are welcome here and your questions are welcome here and your honesty about it is welcome here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart who holds and clings to him alone. So receive him before you receive communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the good news of the gospel, which, which reminds us that the only way we see your wisdom and the good news of the gospel as good news is when you cause us to see it as such. God, we are so tempted to boast in our own wisdom and our own self-sufficiency and our own minds and our own efforts. God, and yet the gospel is the ultimate leveler of the playing field. God, there is no one wise enough to seek you out. There is no one strong enough to search you out. And yet you, the great king of the universe, choose to reveal yourself to those who are weak and lowly and unimpressive. Thank you that that is true. Cause us to be humbled and filled with joy by it. Cause us to be a people who is radically patient and full of prayer. God, because we trust and rest in you alone. Amen.